The Bob Murphy Show, episode 109. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show we've got a very fun interview for you today I'm talking with Larry Reed. So he recently was the president of FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education, a post he held from 2008 through 2019. Uh, Before that, Larry was the president of the Mackinac Center for Public Policy in Midland, Michigan for actually 20 years. He held that spot. And he also has taught economics at Northwood University from 77 to 84 And while he was there from 82 to 84, he was actually the chair of the economics department. The specific article that made me want to get Larry on the show, I've known Larry for a long time now, was uh, I saw, I think there was a rerun of something he had done at Fee, uh, remembering Solzhenitsyn observations on the gospel, socialism, and power. So I saw that article and that was specifically why I wanted to get him on the show. But beyond that, we also just talk about lots of topics. Uh, He's got several books forthcoming this year. We also talk about his time. Larry travels a lot and he had been in contact with some dissidents in the former Soviet Union before it fell. And so that's a good story too, just to hear his observations and and what those people were telling him at the time. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Larry Reed. Well, Larry, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Hey, thank you, Bob. It's a great pleasure. So why don't I open it? Because you're kind of an icon among many in the libertarian and free market economics community. Uh, Can you just give us your background as to how did you get into all this stuff? Okay. Well, it goes way back. Uh, In uh, 1968, when the Soviets invaded uh, Czechoslovakia, uh, up until that point for the previous couple of years, as a young teenager, I was interested increasingly in public affairs. But when that invasion happened, I remember being uh, just so revulsed by it and, and uh, by the scenes of Warsaw Pact troops and tanks entering Prague. Uh, within a few days, I took a bus trip up to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, joined in a uh, student demonstration against the Soviet invasion. And uh, at that point, uh, I joined a group called Young Americas uh, or Young Americans for Freedom, now Young Americas Foundation. And I uh, uh, was sent a package of materials, mostly uh, from fee, including uh, Hayek's Road to Serfdom and Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson, uh, Bastiat's The Law. I devoured those things, and that's when I decided uh, what that would have been age 15, 14, that uh, this message of liberty in some way or another is going to be my career. And my views evolved over over the years. I got into this movement, obviously, as an anti-communist. But the more I read, the more I realized that it's important to consider uh, and have a background in everything from moral philosophy to uh, economics to uh, history. Uh, So 
And I became increasingly more libertarian and, of course, uh, very Austrian in my economics, having studied uh, for four years under Dr. Hans Senholtz at Grove City College. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, like you're, so you were, you think, 14 when that invasion happened and that's what? I was born in September of 53. So yeah, I was one month shy of my 15th birthday. So I was almost 15 when that invasion happened. So at that point, though, had you already been getting literature like from Fee and these other places or no, this was the uh, thing that made you go into that genre? Uh, yeah, uh, then I have to turn the clock back a little bit more then because uh, uh, neither of my parents really were interested much in public affairs. Uh, uh, so I, uh, although my father in particular had good instincts, I remember way back in 1964 when I came home from school and said something about the teachers said that everybody should vote for Lyndon Johnson. My dad was in, enraged by that, and he had a Goldwater <laughs> button, and he told me not to pay any attention to those teachers. <laughs> and he had uh, uh, some, some good grounding, good instincts that I think rubbed off on me. But I saw in 1966, when I was 12, uh, The Sound of Music, Mm -hmm. the movie. And uh, I didn't want to go see that. My mother took me to Pittsburgh to see that. and uh, But when I was there, I was enthralled by it. Uh, she had told me that this was based on a true story. I knew nothing about uh, the background of uh, Eastern Europe before World War II. And uh, I think that was the first time I realized at that young age that uh, there are a lot of people in the world who don't enjoy the degree of freedom that we still had in the United States. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I started reading everything I could about uh, the history of pre-World War II Europe. And so when Prague Spring rolled around, which is, of course, in Czechoslovakia, not in Austria where the movie was based, but it was right next door. When that began uh, developing in 1968, I was riveted to the news and cheering on the Czechs, hoping that this movement toward more freedom would continue and the Soviets would leave it alone. So when the Soviets didn't leave it alone and invaded, I was kind of uh, ripe for uh, right. a much more in-depth discovery of these ideas uh, of liberty that have uh, so animated me in all the decades since. And that's interesting because like one might have thought seeing the sound of music, the reaction would be like, oh, wow, the, the right wing Nazis are bad. <laughs> So the communists must be good. <laughs> and, but you, you were just, you were appalled at like authoritarianism or anti-freedom parties, regardless of the particular ideological exactly. slant. Yeah. Exactly. And I, you know, I've often told the story that uh, about the, the time my father may have planted some anti-authoritarianism in me. This was way back in the third grade when he wanted to take me to Florida for a week's vacation in February. And I was going to a public school and I mentioned something to the teacher about I was going to go to Florida for a week. And mm -hmm. oh, she lit into me and she said, your dad cannot do that. He cannot take you to Florida. You can't leave for a week. And I went home to tell him that, hey, the teacher says she's going to tell the principal and you're going to get a phone call. And they say we can't go. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget when my dad did get that call. I only heard his side of the conversation. He was a patient guy, but mm -hmm. firm. And I remember at some point he said, and this is, I think, verbatim, he said to the principal, now you listen to me. I'm taking my son to Florida. Don't call here again. And then he hung up on him. And we went to Florida. And I thought, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he's my hero. He stood up to these bullies who wanted to tell him that he could not take his son to a week in Florida. Wow. 
can we talk a little bit about the Mackinac Center? Sure. So can you just tell the listeners about that, like what your role was there and, and what, what it stood for or stands for? Yes. Uh, my first job, uh, and I have to tell you this because this sets up the background uh, necessary to tell the Mackinac story. My first job out of grad school in Pennsylvania was as a uh, professor of economics at Northwood University mm -hmm. uh, in Midland, Michigan. So I pulled up stakes, left Pennsylvania, went to Midland, Michigan, where I taught uh, for seven years. Uh, founded the uh, econ major, actually it's a dual major of economics and business management at Northwood, and uh, really had a wonderful time at that uh, fantastic place. Sorry, Larry, can I stop? So they hired you to be an economics professor, so they had classes, but there was no major, and then you that's did right. whatever needed to be done so there could be a major? Ah, uh, yes, should I back okay. up? And no, no, that, that's fine. I just wanted to make sure I understood the situation. Well, okay, yes, yeah. yes. Uh, it, it was the school, Northwood, that was friendly to ideas of liberty. And in fact, uh, the man who headed the economics department who hired me, uh, Orville Watts, had a longstanding connection uh, to Fee. Uh, mm -hmm. Been on the staff with Leonard Reed way back, I think, in the late 50s, early 60s for a brief time. Anyway, um, so that established me in Midland, Michigan. And after seven years of teaching, I decided to move west uh, to head some uh, a think tank in Idaho called the Center for Market Alternatives. Uh, but then in 1987, uh, some people came together back in Michigan to form the board of what became the Mackinac Center. And they looked around for somebody to hire to be the first president. And uh, the man who would later become governor of Michigan, John Engler, who was a good friend and local state senator, uh, he said to those folks, you ought to get Larry Reed to come back uh, from Idaho to Michigan. And they did prevail upon me. So I moved back to Michigan in 1987 uh, to head up the Mackinac Center. At first, they assumed that the first president would want to move it uh, to Lansing. Mm -hmm. uh, it just had a P.O. box uh, awaiting a new president and a staff and a location. But I made the case that, no, I didn't think we should be in the state capitol. We needed to be not too far away, so we can be in Lansing as needed. But uh, just for the listeners, so Lansing is like where the governor is and everything in yeah, Michigan, state yeah. capital, and and so forth. But I didn't think uh, a an independent free market think tank should be headquartered in that uh, political maelstrom. So mm -hmm. I said, let's have our cake and eat it too. I have a lot of contacts in Midland. Let's put the Mackinac Center there. We can be in Lansing, the state capital, when we need to be. But uh, we won't get lumped into all the many interest groups that are in Lansing uh, for uh, more nefarious purposes uh, to lobby to get special favors from the government. So that's why we were located in Midland. And I was president of the Mackinac Center for almost 21 years. I think I met you for the first time during that tenure. You were at uh, Hillsdale College. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That must be at least 20 years ago, I think. I think so. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, uh, I was about to retire into the president emeritus role at Mackinac when the opening came at Fee, and the board of Fee prevailed upon me to uh, make the move from Michigan to heading up Fee. Um, and then we quickly made the decision to move Fee to Georgia, and that's mm -hmm. where I am to this day. Great. So can you give us any thoughts on, you know, because you've, you've had a lot of experience, you've been in academia, running a, so the Mackinac Center, it's, I think people point to it as like the the example of if you're going to have a state-based think tank as opposed to one just commenting on national issues. So do you have any thoughts on, you know, the, the pros and cons or people like younger people who are thinking about what they want to do and how can they contribute? 
you know, because I guess there's there's pros and cons, right? Of like doing have a state based versus yeah. one that focuses more on national issues and so on. Yeah, absolutely. I even dabbled briefly in politics. I ran for office, uh, ran for the U.S. Congress in 1982, mm-hmm. and though I was a major party nominee, I lost in the general. And I wouldn't recommend that. Uh, I mean, I I enjoyed it. I have no regrets mm-hmm. about having run, uh, and no regrets for having lost. But for me, I think uh, educating for liberty is is my first passion, and you're sure. limited to the, the uh, you know the extent to which you can accomplish that as a political candidate or an office holder. Uh, now, those who are cut out for it and uh, really use it if they get elected as a kind of bully pulpit to educate, more power to them. But that's uh, a rather rare uh, exception to the rule. Uh, I would say if you're interested in policy work, uh, that is advancing free market ideas into the implementation of public policy, especially at the state level, well, then take a look at the uh, dozens of state-based and state-focused market-friendly think tanks that now are in existence. We were among the first at the Mackinac Center. Mm -hmm. Now there are dozens. And uh, over the years, I hired some very good people who were experts in education policy or labor reform, uh, privatization, state budget issues, and so forth. If that's your bailiwick, if you like to research uh, and write, and you can write for a lay audience, not just uh, a a very esoteric uh, group of uh, policymakers or academia, well, then think tanks can be uh, a great opportunity for you. Uh, for me, I think my greatest fun has been at FEE because it's allowed me to uh, focus more on those core basic educational principles that always animated me. They, they were the reason I went uh, to the Mackinac Center in the first place, uh, not so much the policy end of things, but uh, FEE has given me that opportunity. So if you're interested in just broad-based uh, education for young people in particular, there are groups like FEE. That, uh, that focus on that. but So it depends on where your passion is, your mm-hmm. particular talents, uh, but there are a lot more options out there today for somebody who believes in free markets uh, than there was when I started uh, 52 years ago. Yeah, exactly. And I somehow hadn't been on my radar either because I you know, got my PhD at NYU and I just assumed I was going to be a college professor for the rest of my life. And then when things turned out that didn't make sense, you know, in terms of my family situation, I was like, oh, wait, there's all these think tanks that they could certainly use. I mean, you don't need to have a yeah. PhD, but it doesn't hurt. And so anyway, yeah, it, it would, there's a, if people like these ideas, there's lots of things you can do. It's not merely that, oh, you have to be a college professor somewhere teaching economics. Yeah, that's right. And if you, if you have an entrepreneurial spark in you, uh, well, then rather than go to work for one, create one if there's a need in a particular corner right. of the country where you may be. Do you have, whether with anecdotes or just general observations, is there anything, because I think it, the kind of person who can run a think tank, that takes a different skill set than someone who can write great articles. So, so you can do both. Like, you you know, and I, you're a very good public speaker too. I remember, you know, the times I've seen you. Um, I, I like your speech too about uh, like like va- core values and the, like the the integrity of, oh. of people and certain yeah. leaders. Like that's a, that's a great talk that you give. Thank you. So I'm just wondering though, like, is there, do you have any idea? observations really like what kind of person does it take to, to successfully run a think tank because you have to be knowledgeable about the policies to know who to hire and things but yes you also have to be an administrator and uh, that's right uh, I think to be and I had to learn a lot of this it didn't come naturally to me uh, I made some mistakes early on but I think at the core of it all to be a good uh, manager you've got to know how to relate to people 
and you've got to put your own ego somewhat aside and uh, be a cheerleader for good people that you've uh, that you've hired. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see occasionally a think tank or or even a business where the the leader, the manager, the top guy or gal uh, tends to be overly focused on themselves. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you can see that when you look at a website, you can see oh their their faces all over it. Uh, wherever I've worked at a think tank, you kind of had to dig a little bit to find out who's the guy who runs the show, and that was by design. Because mm-hmm. I think the best way uh, for just about any operation to run, business, nonprofit, you name it, is for uh, the, the leader at the top uh, to be a, a cheerleader who, who knows how to strategically plan, knows how to find the right kind of people to hire, uh, knows when it's time to let somebody go, uh, has the courage to make those decisions. But when he finds the right people, he or she lets them loose to do their thing. And uh, I've always thoroughly enjoyed being a cheerleader for others rather than, uh, you know, putting my face and myself uh, at the center of things. Okay, great. So, as you know, Larry, but just for the benefit of the listeners, the the thing, I mean, you have been on my list since I started the podcast. Oh, I got Larry on here sometime. But what made me take action this time is somebody, this this article, the, the version I'm looking at, it says it ran in October of 2018. I don't know if that's when this first came out or not. Yes. But it's an article at Fee from you uh, called Remembering Solzhenitsyn, Observations on the Gospel, Socialism, and Power. And so I thought, oh, I'd love to have Larry on here and, and talk about this. So first of all, just I'm sure a bunch of the listeners, they've heard of this guy, but they might not really know that much or they know of the, yeah, there's this thing called the gulag. And I know that's like a phrase about, oh, off to the gulag, haha, but they don't really know what it is. So can yeah. you just give us first like the general historical background before then we talk about what you actually mentioned in this article? Okay. Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Nobel laureate. Uh, He was um, a prolific writer, but most importantly, he was a leading dissident who exposed from the inside of the Soviet prison system uh, many of the horrors of Soviet uh, communism. Uh, He was born, I think now 102 years ago, uh, thereabouts. Yeah, I think uh, that article came out uh, at the time to celebrate the centennial of his birth mm-hmm. in 2018. Uh, he served in the Red Army during uh, uh, World War II against uh, the Nazi Germans. And that's when he really, his conscience really uh, uh, was, uh, was pricked. Uh, he had up to that point uh, known only Soviet socialism, Soviet communism, uh, and the propaganda that the regime fed uh, people every day of the week. But he was a discerning fellow, and he began to see uh, some of the horrors and the atrocities committed by the regime that every day told the people, we're for you. You know, we're all we're here to make life better for you. This is a people's government and so forth. And he was one of those guys who said, wait a minute, that doesn't square with all the nasty stuff I'm seeing. Well, he actually... uh, voiced some of those objections to Stalin in particular uh, during the war years, and that got him 10 years in the sprawling uh, Soviet prison system, uh, which he dubbed later in a famous book, the Gulag Archipelago. And that name derives from a a sort of a network of prison uh, concentration camps, if you will, around the Soviet Union. Uh, There were many of them which were populated often with uh, people who had done nothing in the way of a criminal offense against another person's uh, life or property, but simply disagreed with the state and said so and endured uh, terrible punishment and sometimes death in these uh, facilities. 
Well, Solzhenitsyn uh, nearly died in the gulag. Uh, he credits a particular a doctor uh, named Boris Kornfeld with having uh, renewed the spark of life and spirit in him. Uh, Kornfeld was a Christian and, and played a role in uh, sparking a renewed faith on the part of Solzhenitsyn in Christianity as well. When he was released from prison in 1953, he spent a number of years quietly, secretly writing this uh, uh, fantastic book, so pivotal in the history of Soviet communism, The Gulag Archipelago. Uh, he had to get it smuggled out of the country uh, in order to be published abroad. He was His books uh, were, with one exception, never allowed to be published in the Soviet Union. And of course, this one in particular, they would never have permitted. So he took some extraordinary measures to smuggle his manuscript out. And when it was published in the West, it uh, was a bombshell. Uh, I mean, so many of us, of course, knew that Soviet communism had uh, terrible facilities uh, for people who disagreed with the state. But here was, for the first time, a very in-depth look at life on the inside. And, uh, oh, my gosh, it was uh, a blockbuster. I get goosebumps just thinking about it. And uh, ultimately for that— So when did you read it? Oh, uh, I remember it was when President Reagan was in the White House. So it would have to be sometime mm -hmm. in the 80s. Okay. When I first read it, I still have my first copy, kind of a silver-covered paperback that's all beat up from uh, my having read it at that time. It's not, it's not small either. It's probably a thousand, word, a thousand pages. Yeah, so let me just mention for the listeners, because yeah, that, that book had been on my radar you know, ever since at least going to Hillsdale. I'm sure Richard Eveling mentioned it or something. Mm -hmm. But I had never gotten around. You know, I figured, oh, yeah, I know the Soviet Union's bad, sure. Yeah. And, uh, and I think it's because Jordan Peterson talks about Solzhenitsyn so much. Yes. And, and, and I don't know, Larry, if you know it, but like the angle Peterson, at least in the things I've seen, where he points out that Solzhenitsyn sitting in, you know, in the labor camp and understandably could just be wallowing in his self-misery. You know, this is yeah. this, this whole, but instead was saying, what did I partly do to put me here? Yeah. Like he was going right. through self and saying, well, gee, I used to be an unabashed supporter of communism. So maybe in a sense, I'm partly responsible <laughs> for this horror, you know, so you know, Peterson saying, like, instead of being a victim and blaming everybody else, they like, try to take responsibility and look at this example. So that sort of thing. So I finally, there was a reading group we did at, uh, when I was at Texas Tech. Some of us got together and started, we, we read the abridged version. I'm not going to lie to you. We didn't read the full thing. But I tell people, as bad as you think it possibly could have been, it's 10 times worse. Yeah, exactly. I mean, not merely like, just to give an example of the, you know, they would do horrifying things to people to get them to confess, but it wasn't just to confess for yourself. It was like, they'd grab you and say, we know your children are, you know, denouncing Stalin. And that was a completely made up thing. And no, they're not. It would torture you yeah. because they couldn't go arrest your children until you denounce them. But they would do the most, you know, put you in a room full of bed bugs, you know, step on your testicle, like anything you could imagine they would do. Yeah. So you would admit, agree that your children denounced down so then they could go do the same thing to your children. Yeah. Like that is the most horror. And everybody knew what a farce this was. Everyone knows. Yeah. And just how horrifying that is. Yeah. <laughs> Unspeakable horror. And yeah. you're right, Bob, that uh, Solzhenitsyn was a very introspective fellow. He examined the situation he found himself in in the context of his of his life and and uh, in his book he wrote about how that experience of 10 years in the gulag uh, affected him and changed his thinking and to his credit you know he didn't come to the conclusion that 
Well, we just have bad people running the show here. And uh, if we just put, if somehow if we got good people in charge of this system, it wouldn't be so bad. No, he understood that the system was rotten to the core. That mm. uh, the reason these horrors could be perpetrated was that uh, uh, Marxism, communism, you know, socialism, all these isms of the far left, no matter which one you want to apply here, they, they, all, they all fit. Uh, he realized that there was something rotten at the very core of all these ideas, the notion that a handful of elites armed with monopoly political power uh, could catapult society in new directions that only they uh, would know uh, would be best for everybody. And he, he just came to question very fundamentally the whole notion of, um, uh, of the concentration of power for the alleged good of the people. He, he saw the value of the individual. He instinctively came to oppose uh, people with power who simply uh, pretended or thought that they could uh, manage the lives of millions of others. He just thought that was preposterous, and he saw the bloody outcome of that firsthand. Yeah, exactly. And so the title of your article was "Observe" or the you know after the colon "Observations on the Gospel, Socialism, and Power." Are there any like so what what connections do you, are there? You know, just besides, oh yeah, some bad stuff happened in the the Soviet Union, like what's the connection with the gospel and, you know, the notion of political power, the nature of it? Well, in Solzhenitsyn's case, of course, uh, uh, thanks in part to the man I mentioned, Boris Kornfeld, the doctor mm-hmm. who himself was uh, killed in the Gulag, uh, Solzhenitsyn came to appreciate and deepen his faith in the Eastern Orthodox faith. And uh, this was yet another reason why he opposed Soviet communism, because he realized that uh, uh, they can't tolerate uh, uh, differences of, of opinion or concentrations, or even small concentrations of influence and power outside of their own orbit. And, and so they couldn't tolerate uh, the, the church uh, having any influence over people's lives to any great extent because that was a power center that could draw them away from mm. their core message. Um, so he became a man of, of deep faith. And that seemed to him to make a lot of sense uh, that uh, the teachings of Christianity, legitimate, true Christianity, could not in any way tolerate or support uh, the system that was victimizing him and so many millions of others. Mm-hmm. And also, too, I remember there, besides the particular person you mentioned uh, that was an inspiration, just in general, there were little vignettes as you go through the book where you know, the, the one type of person that the guards could not conquer was the true believer in God because yeah, that person yeah. just knew, you know, no, I'm not going to rat out my friends, do what you want. You know, yeah. if, I, if I die, then I'm out of this prison. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. And so a lot of times, I think he even said at points, some people would pretend to be Christian because they thought the guards might give up and realize they can't break me, even though they weren't actually believers. So yeah. that, I thought that was a really interesting uh, part of the book. There are many such uh, wonderful stories mm. in his book. It, do, just before we move on, I mean, I, again, I want to just say, the, and I'm also curious if you're, let me say two things. So one is just for people to realize how totalitarian this society had become. Yes. In the beginning, like he would mention how there'd be a, like a, a party meeting or something, you know, a yeah. bunch of communist party officials and they would all stand up to, a, Stalin wasn't even there in person. Mm-hmm. It was just, they would stand up to applaud the, you know, the name of Stalin or whatever. Yeah. And then the whole room would be clapping and everyone would be looking around and you knew if you were the first person to stop clapping, you might disappear. Yeah. And right. so they would be clapping for like, you know, like at least 10, I want to say at least 10 to 15 minutes. Like that's an eternity when you're saying it's in there because everyone knew who's going to be the first person to stop. I mean, yeah. that's how crazy it was. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, 
today we can recount these stories and even uh, do so with a smile or, or a chuckle. But boy, uh, we should never uh, shortchange the horrific nature of, of that system and, and what uh, Solzhenitsyn experienced. When I think of those stories, uh, this has been the case for 50 years for me. When I come across examples of oppression such as those that Solzhenitsyn experience, it makes me, uh, it makes my blood boil. I mean, I'm yeah. just so angry. I want to pick up a, a gun and head to wherever this, these terrible things are being done and put a stop to it. Um, uh, but I've learned, of course, that the best way to do that is uh, by way of intellectual battle, by right. convincing as many people as possible that uh, ideas are what matter. And it's terrible ideas that lead to these terrible mm. things. And you you got to strike at them at the core by focusing sure. on the intellectual background of these ideas. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that because that was, I was reading it too, like I would occasionally, and, and folks, I cannot stress enough, right when you you think, okay, I've now hit the, the rock bottom in terms of how bad it was. Now let me just read some more of the detail. And it just kept getting worse. Like yeah. there could be more elements of the Orwellian nature of it. Like I said, it's not just that it was physical torture. Okay, fine. Yeah. But like, again, that they were, they were making it look like it was a justice system and yeah. that you were, they were forcing you to implicate your loved ones too. But, um, that what I was occasionally would, would put it down and say, clearly just about everyone involved had to realize how horrifying this whole system was. Like even the mid-level people who would, you know, that the, they had a relatively better deal. You know, like yeah. if you were, you'd much rather be a guard in the concentration camp than a prisoner. But it's not like their their life was rosy either. You know, you're a guard in Siberia somewhere. That's not a great <laughs> life yeah. either. And so, you know, I, was, I would sit back and say, how can it be? And of course, it all, you know, came down from Stalin. Yeah. That this whole, like, this guy had somehow, you know, got a whole society to be following his orders and do this thing that gotta be 95% thought, you know, this is kind of a crazy system. Yeah. And it was because of their ideological thing. Well, maybe part of it was just the weird incentives that, well, if you didn't follow along, then you were going to be the prisoner. So you might as well as the guard carry out your orders. But even beyond that, again, it was the ideology that ultimately I think a lot of them believed in communism and they, they thought we're creating a better society. Yeah, this is distasteful, but you know, so that, that the way ultimately to disentangle that system would not just be military might. And of course that's yeah. the thing too. It's not that the U S or the allies rolled in with tanks and that's how the Soviet Union fell. It was ultimately, you know, they collapsed from within. Yeah. I'm sure there were a lot of people, the so-called common man of the old Soviet mm -hmm. Union, who privately uh, realized that uh, the, 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 it was a rotten system, but nonetheless felt themselves to be trapped. And they were and did what uh, they were told to do for the safety of themselves and their family. This is a, is a great observation because it allows me to say something that is very important in my thinking. And that is uh, the difference between the, the common man and the uncommon. Uh, you know, we, we hear so many praises uh, to the so-called common man. But uh, uh, I have a special appreciation for the uncommon, and Solzhenitsyn was uncommon. I mean, the common man in the old Soviet Union typically was a, a person who, even if he was bothered by the system, kept quiet about it. But it was the uncommon that ultimately paved the way for the overthrow of that system. It was the Solzhenitsyns who put everything on the line, who mm -hmm. ultimately didn't care if it meant their lives. They were going to speak out and do what they could on behalf of something better. And I thank God every day for uncommon people who speak truth to power, who have the uncommon courage it takes to get rid of uh, some of these evils uh, that that uh, trouble the world. Yeah, exactly. I mean, because to the extent that there are systems in place where 
most people deep down recognize this isn't right, but you know, what can I do? Yeah. Or maybe I'm the only one who's thinking of it like this because everyone else is pledging fealty to Stalin. Yeah. Even though I'm having, you know, but if everyone's thinking that, then, yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, what, what does it take to snap out of that? Was well, some brave people have to be the ones that publicly say, no, this is wrong. And then yeah. that gives courage to the others and made the whole system, you know, can collapse quick. Just like, again, actually, why don't I ask you about that? If you don't mind, um, cause you're older than I am. So you would have been more politically aware when it happened. Like it, the Soviet, you growing up, you know, as a kid in the eighties, you know, watching Top Gun. I mean, the Soviet Union was this intimidating, menacing threat. Yeah, who was bent on world domination, and then all of a sudden, it just melted away. Yeah. And U.S. the political, you know, it's kind of moved on to the next topic. Like, oh, what's the worry about the budget deficit now? Or so, you know what I mean? Like, it, it was like, wait a minute, what, what the heck just happened there? Yeah, I know not many people saw that coming, but I, I'm very proud of the fact, and I've got plenty of news clippings to illustrate this. That in the very late eighties. Uh, I was giving speeches under the title, uh, The Coming Downfall of the Soviet Empire. Oh, that's great. I didn't know that. I wasn't just setting you up with a softball. Yeah, that's that's, yeah. that's kind of what I was wondering is, did you see it coming? It sounds like you did. Well, I never knew when it would come. I never put a date mm -hmm. on it. But uh, uh, I was giving speeches in the late 80s that it was imminent. It was on its way. It was inevitable. Mm -hmm. And that was not because I was sitting uh, back home just reading the newspapers. I was experiencing it firsthand in trips to uh, uh, communist countries like Poland. And I made six trips to the old Soviet Union. And I took a few chances. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of the press who uh, were stationed in those places in those days, I think they just sat around and waited for the official government press releases to come out. And, they, th and then they wrote about that. But to really understand what life was like and, uh, and the ferment that was taking place beneath the surface, you really had to get out amongst people, talk quietly, privately, secretly, uh, make contact with people who were active in the very vibrant underground in the old Soviet Union. I did that, and I was just blown away time and again that, wow, mm -hmm. uh, nobody in the West seems to realize I think President Reagan did. He was getting some of this information. But uh, most people in the West didn't realize that beneath the surface of Soviet stability, there was a massive and growing ferment in the 1980s of, of dissidents who were uh, uh, moving in the other direction. You look at the great events of history where pivotal changes have taken place. So many of them have been almost unpredictable in advance. But then you look back and you realize, you know, uh, uh, there were things percolating behind the scenes and beneath the surface for a long time that made it happen. And then they were sudden when they occurred because you have to get this unique comp a constellation of uh, ideas and personalities and events that come together unpredictably at the same time and bingo, uh, mm -hmm. big changes can happen. That's what happened in 1989. And um, you look back and uh, you realize, wow, uh, these ideas beneath the surface were a major factor. And, and then you had people like uh, uh, Solzhenitsyn and Sakharov, uh, the leading dissidents of the, of the Soviet Union, speaking out. And then you had political leaders who were putting the political heat on the Soviets, from John Paul II to Margaret, Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan. Uh, and then you had this uh, homegrown resistance movement beneath the surface in these countries. All of that comes together in 1989 to blow the legitimacy of these regimes out of the water. It was just a glorious day. Uh, but don't underestimate the uh, the power of the homegrown resistance in bringing that about. Mm -hmm. uh, so in the West, you know, we often say it was political leaders like Th Thatcher, Reagan, or John Paul. They played important roles. 
But I think the resistance beneath the surface is really what made it all possible. Do you have any thoughts, and it's fine if, if you don't have any particular opinion one way or the other, but I think I've seen people saying things like, you know, we should give credit to Gorbachev and Yeltsin that they could have chosen a real bloody crackdown and, and they didn't. Like, how do you feel about that sort of take? Yeah, we don't. Uh, people who've studied this uh, over uh, centuries uh, to a greater extent than I have have often observed that the greatest danger uh, to a dictatorship. Uh, is not when they're at the height of their tyranny, but rather some period after they've loosened up. Mm-hmm. As people begin to say, hey, you know, that little bit of freedom seemed to make sense. Why not? Uh, let's go for more. Right. And uh, Gorbachev, of course, was a committed communist. He, he, he was no libertarian by any means. But um, I think when he began to open up with his policies of glasnost and perestroika, that put the regime on a path of of, of giving people um, uh, a sense of, hey, we can push this even further. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, a little bit of freedom seems to make sense. Maybe we can, uh, they felt emboldened uh, by the fact right. that Gorbachev wasn't so quick to call out the tanks and the guns and start killing people as previous Soviet leaders would have done and and had done. Uh, uh, Yeltsin, I like better than Gorbachev because mm-hmm. he's the guy who got on the, on the tank and the, streets of Moscow when uh, the hardliners uh, tried to overthrow Gorbachev and revert to the old days. Yeltsin was the guy who mounted the tank and basically said, you know, this system is rotten. Let's get rid of it entirely. Flawed figure, yes, but still in Soviet history, wow. Uh, he was mm-hmm. pivotal and an interesting figure, especially when it was sober. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) Which was occasionally. (laughs) Right. Well, maybe he needed the alcohol to bolster his courage. You know, you got to face down a tank. Power to him. If it it helped him to overthrow the system, I guess that's the case for us. Yeah, some people, like, they can't do karaoke unless they get a few drinks in them. And so, uh, you know. Some people say, I do my best work under the influence. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, well, that's yeah, that's uh, interesting. So, I mean, because, yeah, you can imagine, like, with North Korea, if they just said, okay, we're going to give everyone internet privileges, but that's it, yeah. that would be the end of their system. Yeah. You know, they couldn't possibly maintain the rest of their control if people learn more and so on. A little bit of freedom can go a long way, given the mm-hmm. right circumstances. Hey, folks, let's take a break from the discussion to remind you that I am going to be returning to the Soho Forum, this time to debate on whether Christians should support free market capitalism. So I'm going to be arguing the affirmative, and Tony Campola is going to be arguing for the negative. So it takes place on April 20th, and it's sponsored by the Libertarian Christian Institute. For more details, go to bobmurphyshow.com debate. And if you end up pulling the trigger, use the promo code Bob, all lowercase, when you register to get a discount on the uh, ticket price. Well, you're working on some other things too. I know you've got, is it like three books that are, are still coming out in 2020? And oh, do I have that right? Yeah, three altogether. One has actually come out. Uh, it's, okay. a, it's a translation of a previous work with some editing and, and additional chapters. A book I did a couple or three years ago called Are We Good Enough for Liberty was translated into Portuguese by a prominent uh, Brazilian publisher. And that appeared uh, in bookstores all across Brazil in January. And is doing very well, by the way. It's uh, the mm-hmm. second time uh, this publisher has taken something I've done and published it in Brazil. And uh, the first one, a couple of years ago, was uh, a bestseller uh, for some for a period of time. So uh, 
Uh, but that didn't require a whole lot of new work. That's a reprint mm -hmm. uh, in trans what, what, What's the premise? Like saying we, we have our cultural values have to be I mean, adequate? The, the premise of that book, uh, which you can get uh, through Fee or Amazon, Are We Good Enough for Liberty? The premise is that there is an, a strong connection between liberty and character, that they're the two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. That a nation that allows its uh, of individuals who allow its their character to suffer in time will lose their liberties uh, because liberty really is the only political, social, economic system that requires that we live to high standards of personal character, that we be honest, that we be patient, that we be self-reliant, that we be humble uh, and realize how full-time a job it is to plan our own lives, let alone mm -hmm. those of other people, um, and that we be responsible. I think liberty depends upon those things. Socialism does not. Socialism just requires that you shut up and do what the state tells you, uh, regardless of your character. So uh, that's the connect. That's the theme of that book. Are we good enough for liberty? Okay, great. And then your other ones that are uh, coming out. Oh yeah, uh, the second edition of uh, uh, Excuse Me, Professor, that came out in 2015, I think, called, uh, subtitled "Challenging the Myths of Progressivism." Uh, I uh, deleted a few chapters that became a little dated and added a bunch more. It now has 60 chapters instead of just 52, and that'll be coming out. I'm not sure exactly when, but it's at the publisher uh, sometime this year, second edition of that. Excuse me, professor. In the, the title meaning because these progressive myths are typically caught in American colleges and universities, uh, and so yeah, you're arming the student. That's where the preponderance of them emanate from, mm -hmm. I do believe. And I wanted to provide a book... Uh, uh, for students primarily who are hearing these progressive or socialist ideas every day and don't know how to respond to them. And so there'll be 60 chapters mm -hmm. in this book, each one dealing with a particular myth about capitalism or misconception uh, that progressives uh, champion. And it, it, written in a way that the ordinary student can say, hey, I can understand this. And yeah, my professor is not right about this. I'm going to challenge uh, him with uh, this new evidence. Do you, can you give us some of your favorite examples? Uh, one is, of course, you've been in this movement forever, too, so you know that we're often talking about how the folly of the minimum wage. Right. And, uh, well, that's a chapter uh, that, you know, you, as Henry Haslip put it, you can't make a person worth a certain amount by making it illegal to pay him any less. That it's a fanciful idea that government can somehow declare people will get a, a raise. Uh, when in fact it simply uh, disemploys people who are, aren't worth what the government mandates as the minimum. Uh, another chapter, which is also the subject of my forthcoming uh, book, that'll be out uh, shortly, concerns the myth that was Jesus a socialist? Mm -hmm. And one of the chapters in, in excuse me, Professor, in a, in a brief way, explained that no, he wasn't. He never endorsed uh, the forced mandatory compulsory redistribution of wealth through the political process. He was interested in other things, and to the extent he dealt with that at all, it was always uh, in terms of a voluntary encouragement of people to, uh, to provide assistance to those in their midst uh, without uh, gunpoint, you know, doing it uh, out of the goodness of their hearts and their own personal wealth, not through uh, the welfare state. Things like that, uh, 50 mm -hmm. chapters in all. And I think you... You've done a bunch, of, you might even have a separate monograph, right? Like on the myths of the Great Depression. Am I saying the title correctly? Uh, Great Myths of the Great Depression. Yeah. yeah. That's now on its, I don't know, 15th edition. Uh, I think I first came out with that in uh, around 1980. 
And so you, it's not true that FDR got us out of the Great Depression? <laughs> no, he prolonged it uh, by uh, some uh, the analysis of some economists by as much as seven years. Uh, he took a bad situation that Herbert Hoover, Republican president before him, helped to create and made it even worse in so many ways. In fact, there were as many people unemployed after seven years as there was when he took over. Uh, and he, FDR made things worse by jacking up taxes, uh, something he campaigned against. He, he attacked Hoover in 1932 for raising taxes. And for having big budget deficits, like the, you know, the profligate spending Hoover is yeah. amazing. <laughs> and Roosevelt doubled federal spending in his first term. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, yeah, he had no intention of doing what he promised. He even attacked uh, Hoover for, quote, th these are his exact words, presiding over the greatest taxing and spending administration in American history. And then he promptly uh, superseded that uh, himself. Uh, yeah, he was a bad guy. Uh, I wouldn't rate him the very worst president. I reserve that for Woodrow Wilson, but uh, FDR is not too far behind. I'm interested to follow up on that, but just on the depression stuff, it is funny. So as you know, Larry, I wrote a politically incorrect guide to the Great Depression book. Yes. And looking, I had reviewed your stuff too and, and Bert Folsom's and Bob Higgs before going down that path. But it's just looking at the numbers, like you say, to say, did FDR get us out of the depression? You can go look at prior, you know, the U.S. experience with other yeah, they call it, might have called them financial panics or depression with a small d. And it's like, what would the numbers have to look like to say FDR made it worse? Yeah. You know, I mean, it was clearly the longest one in history. And then I even did a thing where I said, okay, maybe you could argue it just, well, the hole he inherited from Hoover was <laughs> so deep. And I compared unemployment rates between the U.S. and Canada. Yeah. You know, to show that, well, no, the Canadians bounced back and it's not because the Canadian New Deal analog was so much bigger than FDR. You know, so it was... It's kind of like no matter how you slice it, there's what would it have to look like to show you it was the exact opposite of what the standard progressive claim was? Yeah, and uh, you mentioned Bob Higgs. I mean, he has uh, done such great work uh, around the theme of regime uncertainty, uh, meaning that Roosevelt was up to no good in so many areas that he prevented over all those years a renewal of confidence and business mm -hmm. investment because he was raising taxes, imposing all kinds of regulations taxing uh, agriculture and using the money to supervise the destruction of crops and cattle, uh, all kinds of uh, nutty things. Uh, but you know, you don't have to take the word of uh, people like Bob Higgs and you and me and Bert Folsom, uh, who uh, uh, believe in free markets to begin with. You can take the word of FDR's own treasury secretary, Henry Morgenthau, who in 1939, I believe it was, seven years into the Roosevelt uh, tenure, uh, who publicly said in a speech that, you know, nothing we've tried works. We're as bad off as we were when we started. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it was somebody else too. It wasn't Morgan, it was somebody else. But like, I think one in the, in the brain trust or whatever that said in the late 30s, yeah, everything we did in the New Deal, Hoover started, we just, you know, amped it up. I mean, yes, that's I, a paraphrase, but admitting Herbert Hoover was not this small government guy. He had started all the, like the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, all this stuff that normally, you know, I'm sure the average American student, if you showed them the list of the, you know, like what was the Reconstruction Finance Corporation? What did it do? Under which president did it start? They would all say, oh, of course that's FDR. That yeah. sounds like a new deal. No, it's Hoover, you know, that Absolutely. kind of stuff. So Hoover uh, doubled uh, the income tax. He uh, jacked up tariffs to an all-time high. He had his own uh, subsidy schemes, Reconstruction Finance Corporation. He uh, tried to strong-arm businesses to keep wage rates high even though prices uh, were tumbling, he did a lot of damage. Uh, and you're right, I think it was either Morgenthau or Rexford Guy Tugwell who said, 
later as new dealers, that uh, what we did was just an extension of what uh, Hoover had been doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was, yeah, the Tugwell that, that said the quote that I quoted in the book about that, yeah. So you made a provocative statement a minute ago. Let's just go ahead and follow that up that Woodrow <laughs> Wilson is your all-time worst president. But I mean, he's up there in the list of good presidents. I don't understand. I mean, he makes the world safe for democracy. What, what else do you want from the guy? <laughs> well, yeah, how did that work out? I mean, <laughs> uh, oh, Woodrow Wilson is so bad on so many fronts. I mean, he had this starry-eyed foreign uh, adventurism in his mind that somehow uh, U.S. power could be uh, uh, swung around the world and, and make uh, countries magically more democratic. Uh, he uh, uh, at home he was he was absolutely uh, terrible. He he helped in one way or another to give us uh, such things as the Federal Reserve. Uh, he was um, uh, uh, instrumental in giving us the progressive income tax. Uh, which he took, by the way, from 7%, a top rate of 7%, he took it up to more than 70%, just in his uh, two terms in office. Uh, he also was instrumental in giving us the direct election of U.S. senators, which I think undermined the American system of, of federalism, of state legislatures making those decisions about who would serve in the Senate for their state instead of uh, the popular vote. Uh, and on a personal level, he was, uh, he was a dyed-in-the-wool racist. I mean, he had uh, yeah. he had D. W. Griffith's uh, uh, famous movie, uh, Birth of a Nation, that was so pro KKK. He had it screened at the White House and later bragged about how good he thought it was. <laughs> he, yeah, know. and we should clarify: this isn't merely like us in our modern times going. I mean, for his day, Wilson was a racist. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. He threw uh, civil rights, black civil rights uh, advocates out of his office uh, at the White House. He resegregated uh, much of the federal government. Uh, postal workers who were uh, and committed no crime but were simply black lost their jobs all over the country when Woodrow Wilson was president. I mean, this guy was a reprehensible character, and yet he had this a mystical belief that uh, a, a smart, after all, he was president of Princeton at one time. You know, he was a smart guy. He just thought that uh, smart people uh, with uh, lots of political power could uh, overcome the, uh, you know, the, the U.S. Constitution and people's tastes for limited government and, and, and run their lives for them. And that guided his uh, two full terms. But, you know, to another extent, I, you could say, who do we blame for Wilson? For that, for him, I blame Teddy Roosevelt because mm -hmm. Teddy's ego, which prompted him to run in that 1912 election, is what split the vote and allowed uh, Wilson uh, to come into office with only about 43 percent of the vote. And, and in terms of just the legacy, I mean, there it's it's uh, refreshing that there are mainstream military historians who will you know be open to the to the hypothesis that if the U.S. had stayed out of the First World War. Yes you know, European history would be dramatically different. Maybe never, we wouldn't know who Adolf Hitler ever was. Oh, I completely. You know, and these are like not revisionists. These are like normal popular historians who who can entertain that claim. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think that, uh, I mean, after all, Europe had been at, uh, European countries had been at their, each other's throats uh, for centuries, uh, one time after another. Uh, sooner or later, they came to the negotiating table and worked out their differences. By throwing our weight, that of the U.S., behind one side, I think it ensured ultimately the harshness of the Versailles Treaty that laid the foundation for the Second World War. 
Mm-hmm. And Wilson was a big part of that. It, you know, even though he said he didn't want the Versailles Treaty to be so harsh, in the end, he settled for that uh, because they said, oh, "Okay, we'll we'll give you the League of Nations." And so he thought, "Well, okay, we'll be, it's all right to beat up on the Germans and and uh, you know have this harsh treaty as long as they give me this uh, this league." Well, you know, that was out of business in no time. It accomplished uh, nothing. Uh, but we got this treaty that laid the foundation for another bloody conflict 20 years later. Yeah. And speaking of which, um, B- Wilson, like his, just his non-neutrality. I remember when I was at Hillsdale College as a student, I took a World War class in the history. And the term paper I did was on Wilson's uh, non-neutrality yeah. going to war. And I mean, one of my favorite things is William Jennings Bryan resigns yeah, because he's but, saying, I can't you know work for this administration like we're supposed to be staying out of the war and look at all these these decisions he's making. Of course, we're going to get dragged into the war. This is like the the poly, like Wilson's what he was telling the Germans they had to do and, and accept while he was letting the British, you know, maintain an illegal blockade and all this kind of stuff. You know, William Jennings Bryan was like, "What, what are you doing? Of course, we're going to get pulled into the war. This is crazy." Yeah, I mean, Wilson was was loading up uh, commercial vessels uh, with munitions, uh, inviting the Germans to uh, attack us. Uh, uh, I mean, he, he he professed neutrality. And ran mm-hmm. for re-election on the grounds of, you know, he kept us out of war and he will do so again. But I don't think he really ever felt that uh, the U.S. Uh, would sh- should stay out of the war. I think he was looking for the first opportunity. And in a lot of ways, you could say he set us up for it. Yeah, I mean, I, I've seen so, of course, like the full-blown, let's call them conspiracy theorists, would say, oh, yeah, it was all a plot to get it. But I've seen other ones to try to take a more um, magnanimous approach and say, Wilson knew that in order to get the U.S. to be, you know, at the bargaining table, the post-war, you know, the treaties and whatever, and to get his League of Nations through, the U.S. had to be involved in the war. They couldn't just yeah. come in as an outside moralizer. They had to have sent their troops and whatever into the cause as well. And so that was the reason. In other words, if you were trying to give a, a, an optimistic or a, a you know, to, to paint it in a, yeah. in a way, that a flattering way to say, why would Wilson be a little bit duplicitous and claiming to be neutral when clearly what he was doing was favoring the British and, and you know, was going to suck the U S and I've, I've heard people say that as is so often the case, uh, conspiracy is not necessary if uh, vanity and stupidity will suffice as an explanation. Mm-hmm. And they do in this, in this case, Wilson would not, was not the kind of president who would be content to simply doing his job as the constitution required, keeping the peace and leaving people alone. Uh, he wanted to be an activist. He wanted to be on the world stage. He thought that uh, America should be pushing other countries around, telling them what to do, or at least be a part of the process of deciding the shape of the world. And mm-hmm. he, I, I'm convinced he really thought that the only way that could happen would be for us to get on that world stage by getting involved in this uh, horrendous conflict. Sure. And then you alluded to it, but the other book you have coming out this year is is it titled Was Jesus a Socialist? Yes, uh-huh. Okay. And there, so let me just mention some of the obvious ones. Because by the way, I'm going to be debating in April in the Gene Epstein Soho Forum, the the question, I forget the exact wording of the resolution, but saying, you know, a a Christian should support free market capitalism, something like that. So that's, uh, this is of particular interest. So let me just give some of the obvious Christian socialist points and, and I'm curious your reaction. So clearly Jesus has a lot of negative things to say about the rich, ostensibly in the in the gospels the acts of the apostles it arguably the first christian community seemed to be one might call it socialist mm-hmm. uh you know from each according to his ability each according to his needs at least um 
And so what, you know, what do you, what do you say about those, yeah. those types of points that someone could say clearly, you know, the early Christians knew that rich people accumulating private property is not, that's not what Jesus wanted us to do. Yeah, well, it's true that in, in Acts, you read about a group of early Christians who chose a communal way of living. But it's also apparent in uh, those particular verses that unlike uh, the way it's often portrayed as if they sold everything and put it in a common storehouse, uh, the very same passages refer to the fact that they continued to meet in their own homes. Well, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you, you have private property if you've got a home that you call yours. Uh, so mm-hmm. they weren't uh, they weren't selling everything. In any event, I think those passages are descriptive of a certain portion of Christians at a particular time in history. They are not prescriptive uh, in terms of how Christians uh, everywhere and for all time should should live. I mean, after all, the number of people who have been Christians over the centuries who have lived in some communal socialist arrangement is vastly overwhelmed by those who chose another path. It was never made mandatory. It, this communal method died out rather early. The Apostle Paul uh, never once commanded it of anybody. Uh, and of course, Jesus didn't either. And it was voluntary in any event. There was no compulsion. It was, hey, this is the way we've chosen to, to operate uh, uh, for now as we go about our mission of spreading the gospel. Uh, but there was no requirement that uh, everybody else do the same. And there probably were good reasons why that early group uh, chose to, to do it that way. I mean, this was a faith that was under tremendous challenge. They were a threat to the governing authorities. They were uh, uh, brand new. Uh, hence, uh, you know, there'd be huge numbers of people naturally skeptical. They didn't want, I'm sure, uh, to be vulnerable to such charges as, oh, you're just a bunch of rich people, or you're in this for the wealth that uh, you, you would bring to yourself. I mean, there's every reason to believe that a lot of people might have said that, mm-hmm. because that's the way things were done at that time. You got wealthy, uh, you typically through uh, your connections with government, and then became part of the oppressive establishment. So I think they were looking in terms of how to market their faith, and they didn't want to uh, have anybody say, you're just in it for the money. Now, uh, there's nothing in the teachings of Jesus that is anti-rich per se. Over and over again, when he's critical, you dig a little deeper and you realize uh, uh, he's critical not of wealth per se, but of people who allow their character to suffer and succumb to the temptations of wealth. Mm-hmm. For instance, when he drove the money changers uh, from the temple, some people say, ah, see, he doesn't like rich people. Buyers and sellers are traders, you know, people mm-hmm. are profiteers and so forth. But notice that he never drove uh, money changers from a bank or from a mm-hmm. marketplace. He drove them mm-hmm. from a house of worship, God's house. Mm-hmm. And for the same reason, if you showed up at a funeral uh, with a kazoo and started playing Happy Days Are Here Again, you'd probably be asked to leave. Right. Uh, so it's a matter of priorities. Um, uh, Jesus warned on several occasions that with great wealth come temptations uh, and be wary of them. Don't succumb to them. And I think that's good advice. I mean, don't, right. yeah. don't, don't we see all the time, like in Hollywood, people who have or in athletics? Some people can't handle uh, quick wealth, instant wealth. Um, But there are plenty of others who do handle wealth well. They're great Mm -hmm. entrepreneurs. And in many cases, they're fine Christian people. There's nothing in the teachings of Christ that say wealth itself is evil. It's the love of it or coming to its temptations 
through a loss of your personal character that you should be uh, careful about, not the wealth itself. Yeah, and that that accords with what I uh, thought. Well, the, the Acts of the Apostles stuff, I hadn't thought of it the way you're saying there about, you know, partly just... Because, yeah, they were being accused of cannibalism and stuff, too. Like, oh, you're yeah. you know drinking the blood of Jesus? That yeah. sounds kind of weird. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and, yeah, but to me, yeah, it shows that what Jesus was saying is clearly if you put your faith in riches, that's that's a soul-destroying mistake. That's the message. That's right. Yeah. And, and he, so, yeah, to the he extent would be to that— to say there are a lot of other things you can put your misplaced faith in, too, not just wealth. A lot right. of things have come with temptations. Sure. And— uh, but I mean, fundamentally too, just that, which you were saying before, it's okay. And even if it were the case that Jesus, we would want, you know, rich people, oh gee, if there's a bunch of poor people, clearly you should be doing what you can to help them to, you know, use the blessings God has given you as a steward. None of that implies coercive socialism as a political system. No, no. In fact, uh, consider the story of the Good Samaritan, a parable that Jesus himself uh, told. Uh, what's the lesson of that story? Well, you've got a man along the road who's been beaten. He's uh, perhaps within an inch of his life. He's in great need. Uh, a Levite and a politician, I think it was, or a bureaucrat, two, two others passing by and just basically say, see you later. Uh, along comes the man we come, we've come to know as the Good Samaritan. And what makes him different? Well, he doesn't say to the uh, man in need, call your social worker, or I'm sorry, I wish I could help, but it's the government's responsibility, not mine. Uh, instead, what makes him a good Samaritan is he helps the guy out of his own free will and with his own wealth. That's the kind of uh, uh, activity that Jesus wants to encourage because he's interested, Jesus was interested in what's in your heart. Uh, and it's mm -hmm. no sign of what's in your heart when you say, I'm not going to do it, but I'm going to have a politician do it for me. Right. Uh, that's cheap talk. And uh, if the if the good Samaritan had had done anything like that, if he had just said to the guy, somebody else will take care of you or the government will, we would not know him today as the good Samaritan. We'd probably think of him as the good for nothing Samaritan. Right. And also to just, you, I'm sure you know this, Larry, but for the listener, I didn't realize until I was older and, you know, studying this stuff that the Samaritans were not liked by the Jewish community. Yeah. And so that like was a particular twist to that story to yeah. say, you know, oh, it was a Samaritan that helped this guy. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. so who's the real neighbor here? Uh, and also too, just to add to the the money changers stuff, I've seen some Christians, you know, who are supporters of of capitalism argue that, yeah, what's going on there is it's not that Jesus was condemning commerce per se, that if you knew what it was like, the temple required a certain offering and a certain type of coin that the common people didn't have or if they were coming from abroad. And so they were being ripped off by ludicrous exchange rates, as it were. In other words, that in order for the average person to be able to do his religious duty as the law required, yeah. you needed to convert what you had or you're showing up with pigeons or something. And and so that there, it, it was like, they were sort of taking advantage of the people who were trying to just do their religious duty. So again, you could say, oh, supply and demand. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But um, I think there was a lot, when you knew the, the exact context, probably regular people too who, our good libertarians would realize, oh, wow, what those people were doing was pretty shady yeah, and, and sort of offensive to someone who believed in Judaism. And so it's not surprising that that's the one time that God, when Jesus, you know, that's loses right. his temper. And and it really doesn't take much digging to to realize these, these uh, important additional facts about these situations. That's why I think so often those who claim that Jesus uh, was a socialist, 
I wonder sometimes, have they really read the New Testament? Is this just a bumper sticker they got from their progressive professor? I mean, have they actually read it? Um, I mean, remember the parable of the talents uh, mm-hmm. Jesus himself tells when uh, a, a wealthy man is leaving uh, town for a while and he gives th- uh, three guys uh, certain portions of his wealth and says, I'll trust you guys to take care of it while I'm gone. I'll check with you when I get back. And as Jesus tells the story, the man comes back after a period of time and he brings the three together and he says, okay, what'd you do with what I trusted you with? By the way, the distribution originally was not egalitarian. He gave one guy yeah. one mm. uh, quantity and a larger quantity to the second guy and the most to the third guy. Well, the first guy says, well, I didn't take any chances. I put it in the ground. And so I've got for you just what you trusted me with. And uh, uh, in the story, he's reprimanded. The second guy says, well, I put it to work, and I've got about double what uh, you trusted me with. He's praised. The third guy has magnified the, uh, the master's wealth to an even greater extent. He's not only praised uh, highly uh, in the story. Jesus has the money taken from the first guy and given to the third guy because, after all, mm-hmm. he obviously knows how to create wealth. If Jesus had been a socialist, he wouldn't have told a parable like that. He, he would have the third guy as the villain, you know, the guy, the greedy capitalist mm-hmm. who magnified wealth for his own <laughs> yeah. self-interest, you know. <laughs> right. Isn't that the one too, like he even says something in the store, in the parable, the guy says to the first guy, you could have at least given it to the banker so they could have <laughs> lent it out at interest yeah. or something yeah. like that. <laughs> That's kind of funny. So how many yeah. of these Christian socialists have actually read that? Yeah. Well, I mean, in fairness, I suppose they would say, okay, he was just making an allegorical point or something that he didn't mean. Oh, yeah. You know, Anytime the evidence doesn't fit your yeah. suppositions, you say it's just made up. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. do that so often. <laughs> well, uh, we're, I guess, we're running low on time here, but I did want to end and give you an opportunity, Larry, because I know you travel a lot and uh, you know, around the world, and as you mentioned, you know, w- with visiting. So I know, do you, is it time to, to show the profit you had? Because that's one little <laughs> fun thing. The, the book about with the Milton Friedman book? Oh, yeah. This is, I'm very proud of this. In fact, uh, people who come to visit my house, and by the way, you should come sometime. Love to show you around. Uh, not just my house, but the area. But people who come here say, your place is a museum. And it's only because things like this are lying around. But I'm most proud of this possession. It is uh, Free to Choose by Milton Friedman. You can tell it's not a very fancy copy, and that's because it was illegally translated into Polish and mm-hmm. distributed illegally by the underground in 19, uh, late 80s before communism was uh, kaput. And I'm proud of it because it was the Polish underground who asked me as my assignment when I left Poland, uh, mm-hmm. we need to find $5,000 so we can raise, so we can do this. And uh, I found it from one donor, the good old Jim Blanchard from New Orleans, gold bug and a lover of Austrian economics. Uh, when I told him about this, he said, here's the 5,000. I got it to the underground uh, through their contacts in Paris. And before the communists uh, were swept from power, this book, thousands of copies were circulating in Poland, illegal, uh, because of, uh, of uh, those very proud illegal printers. Hmm. And I, I think I'm edgy by doing a tweet that might get me kicked off Twitter. And you're sitting there. Uh, <laughs> actually, I don't even do that. That's just a throwaway line. I, I'm actually pretty safe. Um, so more generally then, this is the last thing I wanted to ask you is, what's your stance? I mean, I I don't like the prospects for liberty in the United States. I'm just, I'm constantly astonished and horrified by things the way things are going here. But 
around the world? Like, do you, do you, do you think it's, it's better? Like are things moving in the right direction or just what's your take on that? Well, you know, it's like three steps forward, two steps backwards quite often. And in different places, it's uh, making more progress than others. Right now, there's so much uh, excitement among lovers of liberty and growth in the liberty movement in places like Brazil uh, uh, because of some big political changes. They're very hopeful uh, for the long run for that country. Uh, I'm an eternal optimist, Bob, uh, even though mm. there are plenty of things you could point to today to say, ah, you know, things aren't going in the right direction there or we lost that one. Um, I just think that these ideas of liberty ultimately are so powerful that uh, they will prevail. And I do know this, if lovers of liberty give up, if they become pessimists, if they think all is lost or what's the use, uh, that will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I tell people, don't worry about what the prospects may seem to be at the moment. Mm -hmm. Work your heart out for what you know is right. That's what good people do. Never give in, never let the other side win anything without uh, a fight. And you'd be amazed at some point that uh, big changes will happen. You'll look back and say, wow, we didn't see that coming. But then you'll realize that because good people didn't give up when the, when the going got rough, uh, that's why they, that cause uh, ultimately mm -hmm. won. Yeah, and as we said earlier in this discussion, that a lot of people in the mid-80s would have thought, oh, the Soviet Union is going to be here another 20 years and not realizing how fragile it, it actually was. Yeah, yeah. In my case, just to add a little levity to it, uh, <laughs> I've been so committed to these ideas uh, in my career for so long now, I'm otherwise unemployable. If I, I were <laughs> advancing liberty, I'm not sure what I would do. <laughs> Probably starve. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on that happy note, let's let's hope for a starving Larry Reed in the near future. That's that's what we can all think of it. So, folks, uh, the links I'll put links to uh, Larry's stuff and, and the upcoming projects he has at BobMurphyShow.com/slash 109. My guest has been Larry Reed. Larry, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob, and thanks for all the great work you've done for so long for Liberty too. Oh, I appreciate that. You've just experienced another episode of the Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com. <laughs>